Sweet Dogs, hello. We thought we'd just nip in here at the start before our chat with uh, Christopher H. Bidmead to drop you a line and uh, let you know what's happening with New to Who for 2019. As you might have noticed with the end of Logopolis, that was actually the last episode for New to Who. But with every end comes a new beginning. Yeah, definitely. So we've reached, I guess, the, the end of our initial run of yep. New to Who. Well, yeah, I mean, the original idea was that we would offer entry points into fans of Doctor Who, perhaps fans of the new Who that weren't so yeah. uh, familiar or secure with the old. Give you some really good classic episodes to start with. And I think we've, we've done 20. We've got up to Logopolis. I think with 20, we've, we've kind of done that. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, we've gone through Unearthly Child and Terror of the Zygons. Or Terror of the Autons yes. and Earthshock. Uh, then we went to Remembrance of the Daleks and then City of Death. <laughs> Tomb of the Cybermen, Day of the Daleks. Curse of Fenric, The Seeds of Doom. Uh, we did The Invasion and Inferno. Enlightenment, one of my favourites, and Robots of Death. Vengeance on Varos is one of my least favourites, and uh, Ghostlight. <laughs> yeah, then we went around to Genesis of the Daleks, The Tenth Planet, and... Well, we finished with Caves of Androzani and now Legopolis. Uh, and now that we've got to the end of Legopolis, we thought that was a good place to, to sort of leave it. Yeah. yeah. But to reiterate, that the moment has been planned for. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's true. We're not, we're, it is the end of our sort of current premise, but we are going to stick around for 2019. We've got a few things lined up. Uh, we do. We do. A few little surprises, uh, some, some surprise episodes, and uh, hopefully a couple more interviews. And maybe towards the end of the year, a big surprise. So we're going to be taking a break from the monthly releases, but don't hit unsubscribe just yet because every now and then, every two or three months, we might just pop up and say hello. And on that note, why don't we sit back, relax, and enjoy the chat that we had with Christopher H. Bidmead, script editor of Doctor Who. Writer of Logopolis. Writer of Logopolis. And he really took us to school, didn't he? <laughs> he did, he did. Enjoy, sweet dogs. Thank you. Thanks. Take it away. Please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. New to Who, we have with us quite incredibly and, and really amazingly, Christopher H. Bidmead, script editor of Doctor Who and writer of Logopolis. <laughs> hello, Christopher. How Welcome. Yeah, hello, hello. Well, you've got me partially, or rather I've got you partially. I'm getting bits of you and uh, enough, I hope, to understand what you're saying, even though you're speaking Australian. Um, okay. <laughs> yes. As long as you get the important bits, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, that will be, we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, an alternative to strategy would be just you say every word twice. Uh, and <laughs> <slowly>. uh, <laughs> All right, so where should we start? One of the questions we wanted to ask you was, um, was how you got into writing in the first place and how you got into that sort of, that sort of uh, you know, mode of employment. Yeah, particularly because we know that you are a writer trained actor. Ah, yes, but actually the writing came first. I... Um, I always wanted to be a writer ever, ever since I was very small. I mean, I remember back in 
back in my boarding day, boarding school days, when I was, uh, what would I have been, seven, eight, nine, I would be uh, under the bed with a torch, uh, scribbling away multi-page <laughs> stories. Uh, wow. Yeah, I just, I just, uh, I don't suppose I had very much to say in those days, but I, I was very determined to be a writer. And then, so cut to the age of 18, I think, um, round about then, and I discovered there was this um, uh, place called RADA. I was actually working in advertising, going on a bus down Gower Street every morning to my job. And uh, as, I, as the bus went down Gower Street, I saw that there was this, this doorway with steps in front of it where flocks of beautiful ladies that happened to be entering <laughs> every, every, every day that I passed. And I thought, I have no idea what's going on in there, but uh, that's where I should probably be. Um, and <laughs> um, I, I subsequently discovered this was a place called RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And uh, I, I managed then to reconcile rather cunningly the idea that in order to be a writer, you had to understand drama. And the best way to understand drama was to become an actor. So obviously, uh, I desperately needed my next step to get out of advertising and go into into acting through that gateway into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which I, I managed to do. I managed to con the I managed to con the principal into giving me a scholarship because I'd, I'd left home by then. I had absolutely no money. Um, so I, I spent my two years at, at RADA on a scholarship. And that got me into acting. But the point is that it was really, it was writing driven. So you went from writing into <laughs> into acting so that you could so that you could be a writer. So that I could be a better writer, yes. And that actually uh, is not a bad path. Mm. I say um, it, it's really a great way into writing. And a lot of a lot of um, uh, writers that I know have been actors. And I'm not just talking about writing drama. I'm talking about writing. Uh, I mean, writing novels. There's a, a friend of mine called Robert Olin Butler, who's a uh, a marvelous American writer, and he he started out as a as an actor. I mean, the point is, you don't have to have been a great actor; you just have to experience the the business of acting and what's involved in it, and how you make stuff real. Right. Yes. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense, particularly in terms of character motivation and understanding why characters do things and and putting them into a realistic dramatic situation. Um, we got a follow-up question, and I guess it's really how you moved as a writer into the job of script editor of Doctor Who, and how did that come about? Oh yeah, so let's see. So I did a lot of um, a lot of acting. I got into the BBC Drama Repertory Company, which is a, a, a the backbone of BBC radio drama. Uh, that's a wonderful cushy job for an actor. Um, instead of, sort of living in dreadful digs and, and getting fourpence a week for, for working in <laughs> rep, you you live in London, you commute to the BBC every morning, you have to arrive at the at the crack of ten o'clock in the morning, which is just wonderful, <laughs> and you work through till five thirty, and then you go home. Great job for for an actor, and and you get to do about three plays a week, which was wonderful experience. That was terrific doing that. Uh, so I did that for a while, and and while I was doing that, what else? 
Oh yes, 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 yes. That's right. I went to I went to Stratford. Oh, that's the first one of the first things I did to go to Stratford. Uh, work for Stratford. Uh, work at Stratford for for about a year. Um, and so uh, yeah, and 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 Birmingham Rep and Bristol Old Vic and so forth. But then I ended up. Uh, well, I didn't end up, but I was transitory trans. I transitioned through the BBC Drama Repertory Company, where I worked for several years. And that that gave me a chance to start writing again because I was writing radio plays. Uh, I mean, I say we did three plays a week. We we did three plays a week, which I, as a young actor, more or less usually totally despised. And I was always saying, oh, my God, this is rubbish. I could do better. This is, you know, and the, and the, rest of the rest of the cast would say, well, why don't you bloody well do so then? And so I went home and I, I wrote stuff on the back of, we got tons and tons of paper. This was a key thing to, to writing. You, you do need lots and lots of paper. And of course, the scripts were all blank on, on the back. So I took my scripts home and I started writing news stories on the back of them. <laughs> um, many of them radio plays. And, uh, quite a few of those radio plays actually got done, which was, which was nice. Uh, I was modest about it. I, I invented a series of, um, I invented a series of pseudonyms, so very few of them went out under the name of Chris Bidmead or Christopher H. Bidmead. Uh, they were anagrams of, uh, of uh, those uh, names. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was a very good experience for me. And while I was writing that, I, I'd, I'd always been interested in the science at school, so I started writing also for the um, uh, New Scientist. Yeah. Oh, a magazine. And and that's where I mean I think I think the fans uh, the fans know much of this story, but um that's where uh that's where the BBC spotted me and I was um they'd got the idea that I was an actor, a drama writer, because I'd also done a s I'd written a stage play which had been done in in somewhere in Worcester. Um and I was also interested in the science, and that's when they decided that uh, I was somebody worth having in for an interview. So they hoiked me into Doctor Who out of the blue. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about Doctor Who at all. And uh, I, except, of course, when I was offered the interview, I then watched a couple of the programs before I went in. And, and, and I, I said... Um, well, it's very nice for you to have me, but I, I, I'm afraid that this program struck me as on a scientific and on a drama basis as being rather silly. I don't think I'd, I'd be able to take the job. Um, and and uh, that went down very well with them because they apparently they thought it was becoming rather silly as well. And, um, yeah, they decided to give me the job, which was extremely nice of them. And so that was my first proper job since advertising. I would say proper job, you know, you go in at a, again, it was probably about 10 o'clock in the morning, you rolled up at the BBC and worked through uh, theoretically till 5.30 and, and we went home. But I discovered that uh, the scripts I was commissioning needed quite a bit of work. So I ended up staying in the building till 10 o'clock at night or later and often having having to ring up and say excuse me i've been locked in can can you find find <laughs> the guy with the key to let me out so yeah that was a whole new whole new thing for me uh, and what an ama amazing honor it was it was absolutely terrific i, I can't emphasize enough having 
been on several sides of the writing business, how extraordinarily fortunate it is, and I didn't realize this at the time uh, fully, how extraordinarily fortunate it is to be a creative writer in contact with a delivery mechanism, in contact with a producer, uh, John Nathan Turner, who can actually get stuff done, get the stuff that you write put onto the screen. And uh, that's a, an amazing gift for, for writers because many of them, you know, much better writers than I am, are sitting in, in bed sits. Uh, churning out this great stuff, and and they haven't got that pipeline through to the production system, and indeed neither have I anymore. So that's that's why I now fully appreciate it. So, so so what you're saying is that when you went into the interview at the BBC, they recognised. I guess this would have been season seventeen when I guess it was quite silly. Doctor Who was you know quite pantomime and 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 very sort of comedic. That that was a direction they wanted to move away from. Was that was that an edict? I guess from on high. Was that John Nathan Turner's vision? No, no, it wasn't John Nathan Turner's <laughs> vision. I mean, uh, John was uh, a great panto guy. I mean, you think he loved panto. The silliness had crept in through the seventies. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, as it was put to me, the the proposition of Doctor Who had turned on its head. Originally, the original idea was that it should convey to the audience, the young audience, children, um, the idea that science was a way of getting a handle on the world. The science, science was a real way of, of finding out and changing the world. And in, over the course of the 70s, the whole thing had turned into um, magic. We had, we had, you know, you had got Sonic, wretched Sonic screwdriver, uh, the magic wand that you wave and doors open and things disappear and all sorts of wonderful things happen that, by the way, completely destroy any kind of attempt at having a story going. Because if you have a device that can, I've said this many, many times, it's, I think, I think people understand this now that um, if you have a device in a story that can do anything, you actually don't have a story. Uh, you have to have people who are up against real people who are up against real obstacles and, and solve them using real methods. And by when I say real methods, we were allowed we allowed ourselves to have an extrapolation of, of science. Um, so we weren't sort of anchored down to everything that science knew at the moment, but because we are often operating in the future. And the doctor, of course, is working right across time. So he, he understands things that we could never understand at this moment. Uh, so he brings that mind to bear and that solves the problem. And that makes a real story in my mind. Mm-hmm. Things like Sonic Screwdriver and, and, and the dog, they, they really don't help at all. They're, I mean, the little kids like them for a while but i think even little kids begin to realize that they they are just they are story killers these things yeah so the the idea of coming back into science uh a sort of science-based um doctor who rather than the the magical doctor who of the 1970s or the the what i have to be careful when i say silly because I deeply, deeply admire Douglas Adams, um, oh. deeply. Uh, but silly was his favorite word. He, he, uh-huh. he loved, he loved it. You'd, 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 you'd pitch an idea to, you'd pitch an idea to. Uh, we had a, 
a wonderful opportunity to we knew each other already but we had an opportunity to kind of overlap and and, and walk around london together talking about how the show should go and, and our differences became became clear uh, douglas would say yes that's a a nice idea but it's not nearly silly enough let's see how we can make it sillier and for him silliness uh, but but backed by a kind of awareness of science which is apparent in his wonderful wonderful novels uh silly was a key word of 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 uh, douglas's uh, and i was very keen that we should get away from that and there, there was something else there was there was another way of moving into i never wanted to call doctor who sci-fi uh, but there was a way of moving into because uh, I thought Doctor Who was a, a, just a unique genre. Uh, mm. I, I began to see it as something that was not like anything else at all, which was another reason why uh, the uh, the constant idea of uh, let's make a Doctor Who version of um, the vampire story or Doctor Who version of um, Troilus and Cressida that sort of thing just never chimed with me at all i always thought it was a bad idea it had to be a doctor who version of something that could only be doctor who and if it could be blake seven then we didn't want to do it we wanted to do a doctor who story and there was something unique although i never quite pinned down what that was but i always had this sense that there was something utterly unique about the show which we had to we had to find and build around I love the image of yourself and Douglas Adams strolling around London, hypothesizing and theorizing <laughs> around what Doctor Who could and should be. That's 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 something amazing. I can only imagine. When you say Douglas and I strolling around London, uh, that doesn't quite give you the the right picture. It, it was Douglas who was doing the strolling. You know, he was incredibly tall with long legs. So Douglas <laughs> was doing the strolling. I'm kind of running along beside him like a little dog, with craning my neck and looking up at him. That's that's the, that's the picture you have to have of that. <laughs> that's great. But but I guess what you're saying is that uh, you know your your vision for season 18 that bases it very much in science and and trying to find what that Doctor Who uh, storytelling method is beyond the silliness was was something that came from yourself rather than from J and T or for you know from maybe the sixth floor. Well, no. To be to be to be absolutely fair, yeah. It, I I was struck by how silly the show was. But I didn't have a sense of direction uh, about where it should go. Uh, it was really Barry Letts who knew the show intimately from more or less from the beginning. Uh, and, and quite long chats with Barry uh, put me on this course of, uh, yes, I see why you wanted to talk to me. I, I've written sort of sort of grown up articles for for the new scientist and I'm supposed to know a bit about science. Uh, and you want to make it more scientific, and uh, that would um, th that would counter any sense of silliness. But we could still have some fun with all that, and that was more or less the the ethos that Barry wanted to imbue the program with. And and I was uh, I, I was very much on board with that. So it's it's really a tribute to Barry Letts. Uh, John was uh, John was an amazingly competent um bbc guy who knew how to get stuff done but he was not strong on on stories um and not strong on um this idea that barry and i had so there was a constant creative tension going on there which was 
probably quite useful between you you and uh, barry and jnt no well barry and i barry kind of faded out once once i'd kind of uh, taken the helm as as script editor and was was doing more or less what barry thought we should be doing barry uh, his title was executive producer and he 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 faded away uh, as a you know a good producer should because uh, uh, a, re- a really bad producer will be turning up on the set every day and throwing in ideas and so forth. That's not what a producer is supposed to do. Producers are supposed to put together the elements of the show, um, uh, bring them all together. The the, the director, the um, uh, well, I, I, the difference is that John was the producer, Barry was the executive producer. Executive producer means a whole variety of different things in the film business. Uh, Barry understood that he was his role was to put this show back on the right path, what he saw as the right path. And once it was on the right path, there was no need to step in with day to day stuff. Um, so he did. He he faded out of the, out of the show. And I think I think uh, towards the end, I may even I may be wrong about this because it's a long, long time ago. But I think his 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 credit as executive producer. Uh, eventually disappeared towards the end of the season. Christopher, can I ask a question? Uh, isn't that the point of... <laughs> <laughs> or, or in your case, this evening? Yes. Uh, yes, it is. It is. Never quite got to grips with that, that time that time difference thing. It's a, I think it's probably a fiction. That, because I, I, as I said in an earlier conversation with you, um, Einstein points out that there's no, there's no sense of simultaneity between two points at a distance. Um, so uh, I think the time that you've chosen, which I think you said when you started, this was six in the evening. Uh, I'm trying to imagine you as six in the evening, but I think I think it's probably just some arbitrary figure you you dreamt up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So my 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 uh, ten o'clock in the morning. Connect that up somehow through some sort of wormhole with your six in the evening, <laughs> and here we are talking. That probably explains why it's such a poor connection, but. Um, so, yes, you wanted to ask me a question, and the question you asked me was, can I ask you a question? Yeah. And my answer was, isn't that the point of what we're doing? He's winding you up now. It's getting, it's getting a bit recursive now, but yeah. uh, I, I'll shut up and listen to your question. You're listed as script editor in the credits of season 18, yet when we were watching the commentary of Logopolis recently, you sort of uh, hinted at the fact that maybe you weren't the script editor while you were writing the story. Um... Let me see. Yes. No, I think I was the script editor. There was some um, there was some kind of vague rule that if you were the script editor, you couldn't be uh, one of the writers, which seems to be quite sensible. Uh, so they may have been trying to fudge over that. I don't know. But yeah, it's, I seem to remember that. Uh, let's see. I, uh, so what comes? It's Legopolis. Legopolis comes first and then that's followed by Castrovalva. Is that right? That's right. Yes. You see, this such a long time ago. And then that's followed by my Frontios. And then that's followed by two shows that I wrote, which were never actually done. Um, yeah, so by the time I got to Frontios, I was out of the show. Uh, I was writing that from the outside, as it were, and that was supervised by, by script edited by Saywood. Um, but Logopolis, is that right, Saywood? Yeah, that's right, yes, so. Eric Saywood. 
And Logopolis was written and scripted by Christopher Hamilton Bidmead. Yes, that is that, that is right. Um, I think there was some resistance to the idea. But as I was then known to be leaving at the end of the season, I think they sort of gave me that as a, a, a as a farewell gift. <laughs> Let's. That was it. Was great writing that. Yes. <laughs> well, we all happen to agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I I don't. I kind of can't get my mind around this because it was when we were doing the work, we were going flat out. Just sort of. I, I mean, literally, I was a hack churning stuff out, and I was a hack encouraging other writers to be hacks to churn it out because there was no other way of doing it we had to race through that season get that stuff down get it more or less doable bung it into the studio and and just hope that it worked and occasionally pop into the studio and say no you can't say that line because it doesn't it screws up the rest of the show you've got to say it like this so we did i mean we were working flat out i can't I don't think I've ever worked so hard in my life. (laughs) And there was absolutely no sense at all that in 35 years' time, there were people who weren't even born then who would be taking any kind of interest at all in this stuff. And I'm just amazed as I sit here, 77 years old, thinking that we had no idea we were creating stuff that would last that long. It's, It's quite extraordinary. Yes. So... So thank you very much. We we spoke to a we spoke before to a, a later script editor in the end of the eighties, uh, Andrew Cartmel, and he had the same kind of thing to say that um, when people ask him quite specific questions about elements of stories that he wrote back then, one of his response, well, one of his replies, one of the things he talked about was that back then they were really just trying to make a show a week, you know, trying mm-hmm. to get get a story onto a page and onto a screen, and like um, they weren't expecting to have to answer questions thirty years later about it. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And and uh, uh, yes, he's so right about that because he's he's much younger than me, so he uh, remembers it rather better than I do. But but you say it was a rush, and I guess you know under that sort of incredible pressure and force, great things are forged. Um, we look back today when we were doing our our recording for Logopolis at the sheer intricacy, I guess, of the concepts interlaced with the narrative. We, we picked up on the fact that entropy was a kind of recurring motif that sowed very, very early into, into, into season 18 and, and culminates, you know, in that last sequence with Tom regenerating. And, you know, it, it, all of that, though, should have, you know, would surely have been a part of that master plan or that grand narrative that sat down, you know, at the beginning of the season and mapped out. Is, was that a conscious, you know, part of the writing decision or, or was it something that really sort of the pattern emerges once you look back in, in hindsight and see it in retrospect? I think a bit of both, but probably most of the latter. I think the best kind of writing isn't kind of deliberately plotted out. Um, I, I mentioned um, uh, Robert Erland Baker, uh, um, Butler earlier, and, and Robert um, has a similar approach to writing that I do of, uh, we call it pantsing. Uh, you, you, you write by the seat of your you write by the seat of your pants. So there are pantsers, there are pantsers, and there are plotters. And the trouble with plotting is that the plotting is actually a nasty. It's it's a, just a mechanical thing that you do, and it's no fun whatsoever. And then you have to write in accordance with the plot that you've made, and that's no fun either. Whereas if you, um, um, Lee Child is another guy who, who does a similar approach. And I'm, I'm not putting myself in, in their realm in, in any way, but we have this in common. 
that you write as if you were the reader. You write as if you were the person discovering the story in the way that the reader is discovering the story. And uh, that that can produce wonderful stuff. It can also produce total crap, <laughs> which in my case, it does most of the time, which is why I then have to go back and rewrite and rewrite. Um, an interesting thing about Olin Butler and and uh, uh, Lee Charlie is that they never rewrite. They just sit down and they unfold the story and, and what's done is done. They may go back and change the odd word, but that's that's about all they do. But you mentioned entropy. Now, entropy, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know where I got this from, but uh, I was very struck by entropy when I was learning, uh, studying the science at school. Um, but entry, entropy is now the big thing. Now, there's a guy, there's a, there's a guy called, uh, is he called Julian England? I think he's called Julian England, um, who has uh, produced a paper that says, um, you guys can probably be um, uh, Googling this while I, I talk and yeah, correcting yeah. me. Uh, <laughs> yes, I think yes. his name is Julian England. He's produced a paper that suggests that entropy is the, is the elastic band behind the creation of life. And that with, um, that, ent- that, the fact of entropy makes life utterly in, inevitable. And it's, it's a fascinating story. As I understand it, it goes like this. If I can, if I can do this in less than half an hour, it'd be useful. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So y- you start with this principle that everything is falling apart and uh, everything is turning, basically turning to shit. So you have a, a universe, you have a creator, a, a created universe that's kind of totally wound up and you're interested if you're allowed to um, uh, anthropomorphize uh, entropy, your goal is to wind everything down and to turn everything into shit. And you start by uh, shining photons onto rocks. And well, you start well before then with a whole bunch of stuff that ha- has to gather into rocks. Um, the, the subatomic particles have to become atomic particles. They have to get together. They have to become rocks and so forth. But let's start with the rocks. You, you have the rocks and you shine sunshine onto the rocks and the rocks crumble away and turn to sand and the sand turns to mud and the, and the mud, uh, and everything's getting here and here. Uh, but that's going a bit too slowly. So in order to make things speed up, you, you have a brilliant idea as, as entropy. You think now, Rather than actually doing all this stuff myself, why don't I make make something that does this for me? So you create a creature and the creature eats leaves and grass and stuff and then and, and create. And this is what you want. And you say, yeah, but the other thing that we need is we need lots of people, lots of creatures doing this. So let's let the creature reproduce. And of course, by this stage, you're well into the creation of life. Uh, and uh, the creatures become more and more sophisticated. Then they want to do more and more things. And ev- but everything they want to do uh, creates more. So that if you're, um, a- a- as a human being, you want to go through life structuring things. But every time you structure stuff, you create more. Um, it's it's utterly inevitable. So entropy is kind of winning. But that's how that's how life comes about. Now I hadn't got to the. I mean, this is it. Have you have you Googled him? Is it Julian England? Uh- Jeremy England, it says here, yeah. Uh, Jeremy, it's Jeremy. I beg his pardon. I beg his pardon. Yes, it's Jeremy, Doctor Jeremy England. Um, and it's, it's. Did you know about this? No, no, we're just looking it up now. No, we've just googled it. <laughs> well, 
Well, you stick with it because he's he's really onto something here. I think it's absolutely fascinating. This and the and the holographic principle of two things that have emerged uh, yes, um, yeah, uh, since since I was writing this stuff um, that I, I can start laying claim to. I think <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the it's the Bidmead England uh, theory of <laughs> of life. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I, I, yes, I do want retrospectively to lay claim to that and also retrospectively to um, extract myself completely from anything to do with tachyons, which I was very keen on at the time, but have been completely discredited since. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, one of the other things that sort of comes out of, of, of Legopolis in particular is this notion of, of block transfer computations. Uh, and I know that the impetus for this, I guess, was some sort of inspiration on a, on a desktop BBC Micro that you once had. No, 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 please, please, not a BBC Micro, absolutely not. <laughs> no, this was, no, this was a, an, a, a vector graphic MZ System B. Ah, my apologies. Which used a Zilog processor, which was a uh, third-party variant of the Intel um, AT80... 8080, I think it was, the Intel 8080. Yeah, so the Zilog Z80 um, had this feature whereby in order to move a block of memory, you didn't have to write a whole series of instructions saying, uh, pick up the first memory and copy that across to this second memory. Now go to the next memory along the line and pick that up. You didn't have to write all those instructions. You simply said, starting at this address, ending at this address, take that whole block of memory and shift it over over there. And thus you, you made copies of things in memory. And I was very, very struck by this. I was struck by the fact that what was going on inside my computer, because I owned, I actually <laughs> bought this, uh, computer off a off a, a guy who's now a great friend of mine called Marcus Monsieur. He was he was selling them um, from Nottingham, and um, I was I was advised to to go and see Marcus by a guy called Andrew, who was one of the guys who was trying to write for the show, and uh, he was a very interesting uh, computer guy, and he got me into a large part of this. Um, so I, I went up to Nottingham and I bought this machine and I used that machine to write some of my scripts on. And inside it had this processor with this amazing ability called block transfer uh, computation. Um, so I just, um, no, I didn't invent it. I didn't, I wasn't inspired by it. I just borrowed it. I just stole it straight out of the instruction set and plunged it into a script. Because it sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> There's also actually been a lot of, uh, you know, discussion and, and worthy sort of philosophical analysis, particularly of that concept as it applies to Legopolis. I don't know if you've if you've seen any of this online or, or elsewhere, but uh, the sort of Byzantine elaborate uh, explanation that I, I kind of offered earlier this afternoon to the gentleman here was that it's an analog for uh, the Kabbalah or the, the you know the idea of of, of alchemy, um, you know, being able to transmute. Uh, ideas essentially into matter is is that in any way uh you know something that's related to the concept of block transfer computation wow. as, as I, you applied it i can't believe you're about to lay your kabbalah theory I, on christopher <laughs> H. yeah no that that's interesting no, it didn't didn't occur to me at all but i was a great fan of newton's and um uh, isaac newton was uh, an alchemist also uh, i mean this is one of one of the problems that uh, modern science has with with Isaac Newton is that he was an alchemist and he had the the idea of action at a distance, uh, which of course um, 
Einstein worked very hard to find a way around. The idea that gravity was something that acted at a distance was actually an old uh, alchemist's idea uh, uh, that he kind of smuggled in in order to make the theory of gravitation work. Without it, 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 it wouldn't, work, wouldn't have worked at all. Uh, and, that, and that's the suspect aspect of gravitational theory as, as laid out by Isaac Newton, um, this, this idea that you can have this mysterious action at a distance. Uh, how do we get onto that? Oh yes, yes. So you're, you're yeah. So that um, was what you're accusing me of is: did I introduce, did I reintroduce the idea of magic back into the show <laughs> with with these um, these guys? No, I, I don't think I did because what what Logopolis was, it was a kind of dramatization of what was going on inside my real computer. Mm. I mean, all this was ha- all this was. This was stuff that I had discovered really happened in the real world inside my computer, where there was this this logical space in which you could construct anything and and make a copy of anything just at the touch of a button or by writing a single line of code. Uh, and this was real. This wasn't something that I was dreaming up. This wasn't something I was reaching into my sort of deep magic theories in order to make work this is how it actually did work and uh in a sense i i, I well i i don't know if it's true i don't know if this works at all as an idea but uh, certainly back then i saw logopolis as simply a straightforward dramatization of what was going on inside my computer Wow. Okay. Well, I, I'll retract my uh, what I said earlier. We just keep putting up our theory. You just like you're telling him <laughs> to these theories. Down. He's going to shoot them all down. What are you doing? Man? Here's all the impossible questions you asked for earlier. <laughs> yes. Yes. These these are impossible questions. I, I'm wondering if you'd asked this as a young Chris Bidmead, he would have been able to justify it. But I, yeah, I've seen it again. I've I, I've watched it again recently. As I, I think I said earlier. I, I watched it again um, for the uh, the Blu-ray version of, of the season, um, and I was struck by uh, a number of things that I thought, uh, yeah, if, I, if I'd been watching it objectively, not as the writer, I would have said, oi, hang on, come on, that's stupid. <laughs> that's stupid. Uh, um, in, in what sense is the Doctor, is, in what sense is... Um, uh, uh, is Ainley uh, addressing the universe and telling them <laughs> that if, if they don't fall into line, he's going to destroy everything. Um, I, how does that actually work in in a sensible way? Uh, and people have accused me also of um, dropping the TARDIS uh, into the Thames in order to flush out um, <laughs> the evil. Uh, no, that makes perfect sense to me. I have to say, but that the end of end, end of um, Logopolis. He talks to the he talks to the universe. Uh, he addresses the universe terribly yeah. politely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He re- records it into a dictator and then <laughs> plays it through the radio telescope. I assume. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, but I mean, who is he talking to, and how are they listening to him? And, and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's. A- I think it's one of those truly great scenes that actually don't make much sense. <laughs> <laughs> But analysed more closely, which I hope readers won't, viewers won't necessarily do, um, it doesn't actually make much sense. That, there, I've said it. I've confessed. <laughs> you, <laughs> you say you notice these things when you're watching Logopolis again. You recently been recording, uh, is it commentaries for season 18? What's and, it, 19. and 19. What's it like to sit down and, and um, 
watch these stories that you maybe haven't seen for so long or stories that you wrote all those years ago, what's it like to sit down and, and watch them again? Because you have to really watch them to do the commentary. Now, that's, yeah, that's such an interesting question. Well, the, the, I watched the whole of season 18 um, because we had a wonderful thing uh, for the Blu-ray, uh, which was a get-together called Writer's Room, where the remaining writers who were still ambulatory and alive uh, got together in a pub and uh, talked. I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen this? Not this yet. Yeah, yes. yeah, no. uh, yeah, it was terrific to do that and get together with the with the old writers again and chat. And before we did that, of course, I had to watch through the whole season. And I, I approached it, I have to say, with some dread um, because <laughs> that old that old four by three stuff. You know, it's not a patch on where we are now with television. Television is now completely merged into movies. I mean, you cannot tell the difference. I, I, I watch television to the extent that I do on, on, on a large projector and, and all the movie qualities, you know, you now have long shots where you would never have dared had long shots before. Um, and I mean, everything is, the grammar is now almost completely, um, uh, film grammar. Whereas, you know, we were talking heads back in, back in those days. So it was for technical reasons and, and for other reasons. I, I started to watch it all with some dread. But as I got into it, I, I was spotting things that I just hadn't noticed before. I mean, I'm talking not about my writing. I'm talking about the writing of, of the guys whose scripts I messed about so savagely, um, mostly. Um, and I, the, the, there were things in there which I... At the time, I probably thought, oh, well, that doesn't work, but I'll, I'll pass over it. That actually came alive and they worked wonderfully well. I'm thinking of that one that, that um, uh, the, the, the cactus story. Megloss. Megloss. Yeah. Yes, Megloss. Megloss. I think I hated that deeply at the time. Uh, I did mess it about. I did try to science, science it up somewhat. Um, but even as it went, as it, as it went to the studio, I, was not terribly happy about it, but watching it again and, and, and seeing how uh, some of the stuff that I hadn't touched actually did work and had some wonderful things to it. And the cactus, I really enjoyed the cactus enormously. So, and it was a lot of that through the whole thing um, that, that, that I actually talk about on, on, on the video that I, I was, it, it came alive for me in a way that was totally unexpected. So I'm now once again, very proud of that season, I have to say, and and the contribution of my writers and and indeed the contribution that I made myself. I'm I'm pretty proud of that, and I'm happy to stand by it all. Yeah, rightly so. Uh, it's season eighteen, really. I, it's one of my favourite series of the of the classic series. I just love it. Yeah. Well, it's very kind of you to say that. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it has a great thematic unity. There's some incredible visuals as well, and and as kids. You know, watching it uh, well, well after the transmission day on on the ABC here oh, in gosh. in Australia. You know, the the doctor, you know, with the cactus face. You have the the marshmen, the, the vampires, that vast expanse of the of Warriors Gate, and then that final scene in Legopolis of you know the master and the doctor uh, at the radio telescope and the, and Tom sort of underneath it at the end. These are these are incredible images that have really stuck with us. And that terrible concept, uh, um, the terrible concept of the um, the universe that's been, you know, the logopolitans have been stopped from uh, preventing the decay, and then the idea of that giant blackness just winking out all of the stars, and then they they tried to sort of portray it on that scanner screen in the uh, TARDIS, but just the idea of it. 
it's just always stayed with me it's mm-hmm. like a horrifying image yeah huge yes oh, oh i'm so i i'm i'm very happy to hear that I, I yeah and i've certainly felt something something of that seeing it all again i mean paul paul joyce um doing the uh, the warrior's gate thing um and and indeed steve who who, who wrote the script uh, which i must say paul paul and i we poured over that script and we we really mangled it um but steve was kind enough to say at our get together uh that the structure was was preserved and and he was happy with what what remained um which was nice but i mean i always thought paul was was a bit of a how can i put this kind of a bit of a wimp in a way i mean he was a socks and sandals guy and he came back to my place and we sat down and we worked our way through Steve's script. And we, we kept saying, yeah, this is wonderful, but it's all too novelly and it's not actually working as a scene. So what can we do? And, and Paul would, would he'd, he'd be sitting in the chair reading The Guardian and he'd peep out from behind The Guardian and say, I think, it should, I think we should go this way. And I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, so this, this line would do. And I would write a line and then he'd read it back to him and he'd say, yes, and then maybe so-and-so should say such and such. And we'd, over the course of the week, we put the whole show back together again using that method but as i said i was thought i thought I've, and when we got into the studio paul was very keen that it should be all arty and everything i thought no this is ah, this is not doctor who and we, we've got to get on we've got to slam it at the screen and make you know just get it working get it working don't take time to 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 you know, nice it up and and do all this death in venice stuff and w- whatever it is you want to do with it uh, no it wasn't death in venice it was um uh, it was some other artist stuff that he was keen to put into it. But, okay, bottom line, watching that again, uh, a few, I think, months before last, watching it again, I thought, my God, this is, I see what Paul was trying to do. This actually does work. <laughs> this is amazing. This is it not your great. standard Doctor Who. But it belongs. <laughs> yeah. It definitely belongs in with what everything else we're doing. It, it's it's almost totally different, but it's bloody good stuff, and it really works. No, I, I was thrilled to bits by what what Paul had done with that. <laughs> no, it's it's a beautiful season, and and that story definitely has you know some great visuals, and 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 it's just yeah, beautifully. It does, t- yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we sort of come to the end of of season eighteen then, and. I th- I hear I understand that there was an opportunity for yourself to continue on as script editor editor into into season nineteen. Uh, is, is that correct? Oh yeah, I mean it was a it was a renewable one year contract. Right. Uh, but but I, I've, I've I've told this story so many times. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think how to make it interesting. But uh, but uh, by the time I got to the end of the of that season, uh, I had come to realize that this is this is not just a regular script editor's job i talked to other script editors around the bbc and and they all had relatively cushy times i mean basically their job was to have lunch with writers and just chat and then do the odd fiddle with the script at the end of the day when it was finally delivered and i had uh, I had seen the job as, I don't know if I was right about this, I'd seen the job as the, taking in this raw stuff that the writers were given me, um, that they hadn't got time to get right as per our previous discussions. We, we used to have quite long 
brainstorming sessions about how things ought to go. And then the scripts would be delivered uh, in the kind of rough form that really didn't match up with what we've been talking about. And I saw my job as hammering them back into shape and making them work so that they could be delivered to the studio. And as I've hinted, this often um, left me you know, locked in the building late at night, mm. having, to, having to ring up to, to be let out. Mm. Um, so I, I, I saw this as not the standard script editor's job, but something actually special. Today, actually, you'd probably call it a, a showrunner. Yeah. We didn't have that term. We didn't have that term in those days. And actually, a showrunner would have run the whole thing completely differently and had had um, a, a set of writers that they could discuss the entire show with. We never had a chance to do that. I, w- I would be talking uh, sort of one on one with each writer and the writers never talked to each other. Um, it would have been good, really good to have a, you know, a writer's room on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I mean, that's how you would do it today. Uh, I don't know if you'd do Doctor Who that today, but that's how I would do Doctor Who today, certainly. So, um, yeah, so it was this uh, job that involved an enormous amount of rewriting. So to get to the point of my story, when I was offered the, uh, as one totally expected, the renewal of the contract for another year, uh, I was I was pretentious enough to say, Yes, but um, I think the job, I think you underestimate the job that I have to do. And what I was, what I was interested in, 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 what I was trying to do was not get more money. I actually wanted people to understand that this was a different and, and actually rather more uh, arduous job than the job that I had been offered, uh, you know, a year ago when, when we started the whole thing. And I asked for a 30% increase. And of course, this is anathema to the BBC because they have got structures, <laughs> and this was this was way outside any structure that they had, and they were just forced to say no. And so, having said no, I couldn't withdraw my bluff and say, "Oh yes, but I'm sorry about that. I would, I really would like to stay on anyway, and I'll even take a cut." Um, which, in fact, I would have done because it was a, it was a very stimulating and wonderful job. Uh, but I, I was too proud, and I said, "Okay, well, if that's it, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm going to have to leave." And but I left, and that was the end of that for me. Well, it wasn't the end of it. I mean, the extraordinary <laughs> thing is, it's just gone on and on and on, and here we are, 35, 37 years later, and it's still, <laughs> uh, still vital. I think it's just terrific, and that's all thanks to you guys. Uh, I'm just so grateful to you. No, we're in turn grateful to you. Absolutely. I mean, just the idea that we could grow up reading these novelizations written by yourself and, you know, watch these stories script edited and written by yourself and to be able to talk with you about them. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It it is like the 11 year old self, you know, (laughs) just pinching pinching himself right now. (laughs) So so we really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's interesting what you say there. It's essentially BBC pay scales that prevented us from having you, you know, continue on as in season 19 as the script editor. And, And for me, I think I've said this before, but the great what if of, of 1980s Doctor Who for me is had Christopher H. Bidmead stayed no. on for one more season as script editor. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, season 18 has this wonderful, we mentioned entropy, things winding down, you know, the, the centre cannot hold, um, things fall apart. And, and that's right and proper, I sense, uh, because, you know, Tom Baker's leaving the, the, sure. the post as the doctor after seven years mm. but we have a renewal a rebirth a regeneration with with peter davison's first season at the beginning of the 80s there the, the satellite age is upon us 
what an honour it was to to be chosen to write that intro for for Peter because yeah I think he's a terrific actor and and uh, it was a just a wonderful opportunity to to write that yeah I can absolutely imagine I I have to confess again that Castrovalva as I was a teenager was very much my favourite Doctor Who story mm-hmm. of all time and still has retains an incredible p- place in my heart uh, that there's you know that sort of beautiful sense of new beginnings i guess and 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 you know the complexity of recursive occlusion and those escher type prints really sort of speak to me still but i i guess is is was there ever or or or, or did you get to a point where you know having concluded season 18 and and its sort of uh trajectory um into in towards the end of 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 the doctor's life was there anything on the other side in terms of season 19 plans to to start afresh with a young new doctor and in in a brand new decade well there were certainly plans to get rid of of tom um uh, (laughs) (laughs) what can i say Uh, i mean tom i think tom will acknowledge that he was he, he was kind of fed up with the show by then and there were rows and all kinds of stuff and um i mean he's a different guy now i mean i've seen him i've met up with him again since for the for the uh some of these revival things and uh, he's he's just wonderful he's terribly entertaining again and and just fabulous but he was quite tough to work with at the time and uh and peter davison was it was a wonderful actor who respected his fellow actors and 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 worked with them which was a kind of a revelation and and that was nice um <laughs> in in retrospect i think my my idea of putting peter in a in a box for most of the story um might not have been the greatest idea um i i, I didn't know how he was going to work out as a doctor so in in a way that was a kind of caution on my part Let's yeah. keep him in a in a box. But it was also a dramatic, um, I, I think, quite a useful dramatic invention that we should just tease a little bit of the Doctor because um, we were going to have quite a bit of him as the season unfolded. So let's just have a glimpse of the Doctor and then put him in a box and and trundle him about and then see how things develop. I, I think that was I, I, I saw that again recently and I think that idea works very nicely. But the, the whole idea of Castrovalva is, is very haunting. And that, that, that brings us back to this holographic principle thing again, that, that now seems to be uh, pretty well established science, uh, as far as I can make out, um, that this is what happens, that um, uh, what you think is the solid universe that you're in may well just be a holographic projection of stuff on the surface of a, a sphere of whatever size um that's where all the real data is and what we're living in is a hologram um that's putting it very simplistically and i'm sure suskind uh, would object to to that simple explanation but it's kind of my dramatization of, of it so i yeah so i lay claims to uh, to the, <laughs> the suskind um holographic uh, principle as well so that's the bid me <laughs> holographic principle we we have now hmm. um i think i think uh, that's that's probably enough for me isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
but there's def- definitely a, a strong sort of existential aspect to, to Castrovalva, which really spoke to me, I guess, at that age and, you know, questioning whether the world is real in my perceptions and, sure. and that kind of thing. So that, that's beautifully played out, I think, in Castrovalva. Are there any... Uh, now, this is, this is a question that when I interview people... Um, <laughs> When I interview people, uh, as I do for my my job as IT journalist, um, I always end up saying, is there any question that I should have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> and uh, uh, this, uh, there's one occasion on which this, I, I really learned to do this. Um, I was talking to a guy who claimed uh, yeah, he, he had done physical experiments that allowed um, it, holography again. It was a holographic memory system that stored an, at the time, unbelievably huge amount of memory in a tiny cube. And we talked, for, I think, for half an hour about this, and I jotted down tons and tons of notes. And then I said at the very end, I said, is there anything I should have asked you that I have not done so? And he said, yes, there's one minor point. You should have asked me what temperature does the cube have to be to preserve this memory? I said, okay, what temperature does it have to be? He said, very, very close to absolute zero, uh-huh. which of course changed, changed, the, changed the whole name of the game. So let me ask you, (laughs) is there any question that you should have asked me that, uh, that, uh, no, you're supposed to ask that, aren't you? No, that's right. Yes. You're interviewing me. I've, yeah, I've got this the wrong way around. So uh, you're supposed to ask me, is there any question that I should have, you should have asked me that I haven't asked? uh, Christopher, can I I ask a question? I have to point out to you, as as a strict grammatarian, that that is a question. So yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm just playing up to earlier. Um, <laughs> is, is there any question? Oh, is there shoot. any question that we should have asked you that we haven't? No. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh dear, dear, dear. dear. <laughs> Well, thank you. You seem to have had a lot of fun at your end. Well, no, it's uh, been we're a we're we're adventure. having a whale of a time. We right? just want to we just want to finish up maybe by asking uh, what's next for you. What's, what's next what, for what's, Christopher Hamilton Bidmead? What's on your horizon? Oh well, I'm I'm still reviewing IT stuff. Uh, I write for a web publication uh, called TestedTechnology.co.uk, um, and um, still managed to keep my hand in. Uh, IT wise with that stuff and I write um, uh, quite slow reviews it takes me a long time but that's actually great I mean get, get a piece of kit and, and spend a couple of months with it and then write up you get something very different from what the what the regular uh, uh, reviewers will come up with you you get in in great depth and it's the way I always wanted to do IT reviews and now I'm doing it and uh, that that continues. So that's my main um, main. Uh, I was going to say source of income. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody makes any money out of IT uh, journalism these days. So it's it's my main time sink these days, and uh, I'm enjoying it greatly. But thank Excellent. you for asking. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to us. We had a great time and uh, found out some things we didn't know. Had yeah. a couple of giggles along the way. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thank you again.
you seem like a fairly decent bunch of chaps. 